Good to see everyone here this morning. If you're a visitor, don't forget to turn in your connection card to the uh, um, to the the welcome center. Um, did you guys? Did anyone get coffee in the foyer this morning? Yeah, yeah I, I, we're we're working on how that works. As far as I think we ran out of coffee and creamer and stuff, we're going to get that down. I think I'm going to uh, get a few teams working to make sure that stays stocked and it's nice. This you know first first Sunday. Uh, really excited about the, the foyer changes. We still have some signage that's coming and stuff like that, but um, really excited about the new area. Um, we just pray that it kind of helps, you know, us fellowship some more and, and give us a place to go. And also, if you're a visitor, the, the Welcome Center is going to be a one-stop shopping for you as far as, like, where to get all your information about the church and any questions that you might have. So um, I'm really, really excited about this uh, series that we're doing, Elephants in the Room. Uh, we are taking the month of August, uh, and we're actually going to do a sixth one as well, where we are talking about the stuff that we don't like to talk about. Uh, there's lots of uh, taboo topics that we don't typically mention in church, and some of them are for really good reason, but the Lord has laid it on my heart that we really just just need to be honest about this kind of stuff and talk about it, not ignore it, and just uh, just cover everything in love. Amen. And... Uh, and uh, uh, and, and, and treat each other with honor regardless of how we feel. And so this morning, we're actually going to be talking about politics. Um, we're going to be talking about politics in church. What? Now, see, here's the thing. So a church is actually considered a tax-exempt um, organization by the government. But because of that, the government wants to make sure that we don't tell you who to vote for. Now, there's this idea that churches can't comment on political matters, and that's not true at all. That's actually used by anti-church groups to try to, you know, intimidate pastors from, you know, preaching from the word. Lots of times they'll take a moral issue and they'll politicize it and say, well, now you can't talk about it. And that's just not true. Um, I don't want to tell you who to vote for anyway. I think you're smart enough that you can figure it out on your own, Okay. But we can talk about political stuff. Um, now, within our body, God has uniquely gifted Victory Fellowship Church with a wide variety of people. And it's beautiful. All these churches where everyone's like the same color and the same socioeconomic group, they are going to be in for a surprise when they get to heaven. Right? I mean, it's, it's going to be really different. And so uh, there's a lot of variation here at VFC in, and when it comes to politics. Um, some people think that, like, Obama is, like, the worst president on the face of the planet. And they're like, do you think he might be the Antichrist, Jamie? No. And then others are like, wow, Obama is wonderful and great, and we stand behind him. And, and look, and even when I mention that, some of you bristle. And it's because politics is so divisive. And I want to tell you this morning that there is a better way. God has called us to a better way than taking part in the typical uh, political discussions. For me personally, the Lord dealt with me. Now, this is for me. This is not for you. But as far as I'm concerned, while I will continue to comment publicly on social media on moral issues, I'm not going to get political because I want to minister to people regardless of what their politics are. And if I'm always out there supporting a certain candidate or being divisive, then it hurts my platform that the Lord has given me to usher in his kingdom at the expense of a political kingdom. So that's what the Lord has called me to. Now, feel free to have your own political opinion. I'm actually going to 
cast a vision here a little bit for what your role is when it comes to government. But before we start that, I want to ask the question, how does God feel about government? Have you ever stopped to think about that? I mean, we just pick our sides, we pick our candidates, we pick our issues. But have you ever stopped to think, how does God feel about government? What does he think? Don't we want his opinion? I want to take you um, kind of through both the Father, the Son, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and we want to look and see what the Bible actually shows us about how God feels about politics. Now, before we get started, I want you to understand the government of Israel in the Old Testament changed over time. It first started out, now don't check out on me, okay, because I'm going to give you a quick history lesson. I know you're not in school anymore, okay, but you've got to understand some basic stuff. So it started out with what's called the patriarchs, okay? The patriarchs were men that God had a personal relationship with, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? These guys, um, and, and they led the nation of Israel, okay? You see guys like Moses, who was considered a friend of God, Joshua, who finally brought them into the promised land. So God used these patriarchs, right, to rule in Israel. Well, then what happened is it's called the era of the judges. The judges were raised up. There are several judges. There was even a female judge, ladies, and she was arguably one of the best, Deborah. And there, was, uh, there were judges that oversaw the rule of God in Israel. See, Israel was a theocracy. That means God's the government. But he used people to tell them what was going on. So he used judges, right? Then what happened about 1,000 B.C. before Jesus was born, 1,000 years before Jesus was born, they switched their form of government to ju- from, from judges to kings or a monarchy. And you guys are familiar with the concept of a mon- monarchy and kings, okay? And so I want to read to you, I'm going to read uh, from 1 Samuel 8, and you're going to see that secular government is not God's design. Secular government is not God's design. And I'm going to show it to you here in Scripture. I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's not that long. But I am going to be reading in the New Living Translation. So if you can't follow along, I just encourage you to listen, okay? So this is 1 Samuel 8. Um, Just so you know, Samuel was a judge. He was the last judge of Israel. He's about to turn over the judging job to his sons. And then you'll see what happens. So verse 1, Samuel grew old. He appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba, but they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you're now old. This is going to be a great conversation. You're now old, and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Because remember, they were a theocracy. They didn't have a king. Verse 6, Samuel was displeased with their request, you think, and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed their other gods. And now, they are giving, and now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. Verse 10. So Samuel pa- uh, passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. 
This is how a king will treat you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow his fields and harvest his crops. Some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and attendants. We know those to be taxes, right? Verse 15, he will take your male and female slaves, demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding, but the Lord will not help you. Verse 15, but the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said, and the Lord replied, Do as they say and give them a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. The first secular government that appeared in the nation of Israel was not God's idea. It wasn't his idea. He wanted to rule the people himself. He wanted to continue to rule, and they said, no, we want to be like the other nations. We want to be like the other nations. We want to have a king. And he goes, okay. See, oftentimes, the Lord will judge us by giving us what we want. Because we don't always know what we want, but we keep begging him and saying, God, I want this, I want this. And he goes, okay. It's going to hurt. But here you go. Here you go. Now, there's this idea going around that, that, and it's based off of a verse, when we're actually going to read it later on, it's Romans 13, where it says that all governmental authority comes from God. So there's this concept that, well, since the government's in, uh, you know, since we have a president and, and the government uh, has been placed in authority, therefore God put those people in authority, therefore we have to do everything they say. Have you heard that, that concept? It's pretty rampant in the church. I want to let you know that's not true. It doesn't make an ounce of sense. If that were true, then that means that Hitler was specifically put in charge by God to destroy the Jews. That doesn't make sense, does it? So not all governments are specifically what God wants for for those people. As a matter of fact, if you look here in Hosea, it says, The people have appointed kings without my consent and princes without my approval. So just because someone is in political authority does not mean that God wants them there. Okay? And again, we'll cover this a little bit more later. But you need to understand this whole idea of, well, I'm opting out because, you know, I guess whatever the Lord wants to happen is going to happen. No. You can't appoint kings and he has nothing to do with it. Do you see that? Do you see that? So let's look. So that's, that's, how, that's how God the Father felt about government. That's how he felt. He goes, this isn't my idea. This king is going to rule over you, and it's going to hurt, but you want it, so you get it. Let's look at the life of Jesus now. Jesus didn't get political at all. You will never find a time where Jesus chooses to get political. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't have every right to. As a matter of fact, the government of Jesus' time was terrible. If you don't like our government... You would absolutely hate the government that was in place when Jesus was on the earth. 
the Romans had occupied Israel. So another country, the Romans, had taken over all of Israel. Israel was fighting for their own indigenous customs and ways of life and law. And the Romans were coming in and set up like, you know, mayors over cities and governors over states. And then Caesar, who was over all of Rome. These were horrible, despicable, awful people. Way worse than anyone the United States has ever seen. As a matter of fact, uh, we, Herod killed Jesus' first cousin. Chopped his head off. I mean, the, the mayor of Thomasville hadn't chopped your cousin's head off, has he? I don't think so. Did Jesus go pick it? Did he go ransack the, the, the building? Did he, did he go in there and, and, and say, we've we got to overthrow this kingdom? He didn't. He didn't, did he? The, the Caesar at the time was a guy named Tiberius. And if you want to do some study on your own, I will warn you. Tiberius did things I don't even feel comfortable saying from the stage here. And I say a lot from the stage here. I mean, he was a despicable, awful shell of a human being. He was a terrible, terrible person. Do you ever hear Jesus creating a rally to rally against Tiberius? You don't. You don't. Jesus didn't get political, but I'll tell you what he did do. First of all, he separated the spiritual kingdom from the earthly kingdom. Now, you can write this verse down and study it later. For the sake of time, I'm not going to turn there. But you guys know uh, the phrase, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. What was, what was happening is the Pharisees had set up Jesus. They were trying to uh, trick him so that they could kill him. And an easy way to kill him was to make the Romans mad at him because they killed everyone they didn't like. So they invite a bunch of Roman officers there. Jesus is there, and they go, hey, Jesus, should we pay our taxes to Rome? Because it was the prevailing idea that the Jews, well, we shouldn't have to do this. The Romans are standing right there. Jesus goes, give me a coin. Give me a Roman coin. They flip him one. Who's, who's, whose face is on this coin? Whose name is on this coin? Caesar. He goes, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. So there was a distinct separation You have a civic duty, you need to do that. You have a spiritual duty, you need to do that. And they were considered separate. They weren't one and the same. Okay? And so that's how Jesus did that. Secondly, Jesus ran when they tried to make him a political leader. Like, he didn't just shun it a little bit. Like, he literally left the premises. Like, if let's turn to John. John chapter 6, I apologize, I know my voice is a little scratchy because I sang and yelled it out last night at the women's dinner, so I think you can deal. I'll just sound a little bit more Pentecostal. (laughs) So John chapter 6, verse 15, he just fed a bunch of people, just did a bunch of miraculous signs. They are freaking out. They think Jesus is awesome. Verse 15, but when Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, not their savior, not their God, but their political king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. How many people would do that today? You got, you got like a, a mighty man of God who's performing miracles and, and an amazing teacher like no one's ever seen. And people are like, wow, we want you to be our king. Like we're going we're gonna to support you and, 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 and finance you and you'll be our king. How many men would would say, it's oh, not a bad idea. I mean, this way I can do a lot of good. This way I can really begin to, you know, you know, 
make sure that people do what God wants them to? Yeah, a king's not bad. Jesus ran. He ran. He said, that's not my kingdom. That's not my purpose. That's not my way. He ran from them. And throughout his whole ministry, they were always, even the disciples, were trying to make him king. Were trying to make him a political leader. They even asked right before he died, is this when you're going to you know, overthrow Rome? <laughs> He's like, no. Don't you get it? It's a spiritual kingdom. Thirdly, Jesus warns of having a political spirit. He warns specifically of having a, a political spirit. Uh, for the sake of time, write down the verse. You can study it later. Mark chapter 8, uh, he just gets in a fight with the Pharisees. They are giving him a hard time. They say, we demand that you show us a miraculous sign to prove that you're who you say you are. He's like, you don't get a sign. <laughs> They're like, okay. Gets on the boat with the disciples, and he's, he's, he's probably just fuming. And he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, who were the Pharisees? There were actually two political groups. This is going to sound very familiar to you. There were actually two political groups of the day um, within Jewish culture. One was the Pharisees. The other one was the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the ultra-right conservative group. The Sadducees were the ultra-left liberal group. And Jesus didn't make friends with either of them. (laughs) They all didn't like him. None of them liked him, okay? And so the Pharisees had been giving him a hard time that, at that moment. And then Herod, remember, was the Roman leadership over Israel. He, he, says, he says, be forewarned of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, what's leaven? Leaven is what makes bread rise. It's the active agent. It's what turns flour, essentially, into bread that's edible and enjoyable. So it's the active ingredient. Beware of the active ingredient of the two political parties. Beware of the active ingredient of the occupying government. It's not of the kingdom. He's warning his disciples. Thirdly, the Apostle Paul actually lists politics as a work of the flesh. In Galatians 5.20, he's writing out the works of the flesh. And you guys know the fruits of the Spirit. He compares and contrasts Works of the flesh with fruits of the spirit. And he lists like a list of works of the flesh. One of them in verse 20 is going to be translated in your Bible either as strife, selfish ambition, or rivalries. The Greek word is actually uh, erythia. And it literally means, you can look it up in a Strong's Concordance or any Greek concordance. It literally means electioneering for office and partisanship. It's considered a work of the flesh. And guys, this runs rampant in our churches. You get someone who's heard from God that they need to be in charge of something or that their opinion needs to be elevated among the church. And so then they begin, well, I think we should do this. Well, I think the sanctuary should be this color. Well, I think we should start this ministry. Don't you agree? And instead of going through the proper channels, they electioneer and they, and they, they get their group together, Right? It's rampant in the church, and it disgusts the Lord. It's a work of the flesh. It's not a move of the Spirit. Why would God tell you what's best for this church when you don't bear the responsibility for shepherding the church? Why would he tell you what's best for the church when you act like a jerk? (laughs) Why wouldn't he tell you that first? 
right? And guys, I love the fact our church is not political at all. Like, seriously, you guys are awesome. But I have friends who have been run out of their churches because of this political spirit. It is a work of the flesh. It's not of God. And we have to fight and contend to keep it out of here. Amen? Amen. Lastly, now this is positive. We actually see here in the Bible Joseph and Daniel working in the highest sectors of secular government. Now, it wasn't without a price. Joseph was sold into slavery first, as you may recall. But then, after interpreting a dream, he actually became second in command of all of Egypt. Second. All right? So God places Christians at high points of authority in our secular governments. It exists. We also see uh, Daniel as well. Um, Daniel was in Babylon. He had been taken as a slave, essentially. And um, he stayed true to his beliefs, to his ways. And, um, and he was elevated. He was very high up, very high up in, 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 the, in the government. Um, and so, but again, it wasn't without a price. But, but there are godly people who are called to work in the government. So that's what we see in Scripture. We see in Scripture, God the Father never wanted it. We see that Jesus didn't get political, though he had every right to. We see Paul listed as a work of the flesh. And then we do see some godly men as an example of what it looks like to serve in a secular government. All right, are we straight on that? We good? I'm looking for like a nod or something. Are you, okay, cool. I was just looking for something. Okay. So the next question then is, what is the church's role in government? In light of what scripture says, what is the church's role in government? Well, I'm going to cast a vision. I'm going to spend the majority of my time on this for the rest of the time. This is what I believe the church is called to. This is, this is not, not, not the political arena. I believe that we are called to be what's called the ecclesia. And I'm going to explain that. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to start at verse 13. Jesus, by the way, is just talking about bewaring of, of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Political spirit. So they come uh, to, uh, the, let's see. Uh, so he asks his people, he goes, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do they say that I am? Verse 14, well, some of them say John the Baptist, some of them say Elijah, some of them say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. All right, decent answers. Unfortunately, they're all wrong. Verse 15, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Now, in the, in the Greek, the word you is plural. So if Jesus was from Georgia, he would say, who do y'all say that I am? So he's asking the whole group, Okay. And then Peter, who tends to be the spokesperson, says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn it from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the powers of hell will not prevail or conquer it. All right, let's stop for a second. He said, Jesus liked to play on words. You're going to see this all throughout Scripture. He liked to play on words. He was a fun guy. He wasn't like, oh, floating around everywhere. And so um, Peter's name in Greek is Petros, and it means a stone. So it means like a, like a rock that you could hold in your hand, okay? It, not like a little pebble, but a rock that's big enough to hold in your hand, okay? That's what his name meant. He said, well, your name is Petros, but upon this rock, the word here in Greek is Petra. Upon this rock, upon this Petra, I will build 
my church. Now, Petra is not just one stone. Petra could either mean one huge, big, fat boulder, or it can mean a conglomeration of a bunch of little stones into one big thing. And I believe that's what the Lord meant. They were, like if there's a, a big rocky cliff made up of a bunch of stones or like, um, a, like a dam that would dam up the, a river made up of a bunch of stones, that would be a Petra, a bunch of stones put together for one purpose. Guys, it's, it's the church's unity that's going to impact our culture. It's all of us not wanting to be our own stone. And we've got plenty of church buildings around. If we want to impact culture, if we truly, truly want to impact culture, we need to get over our own little ministries. And we need to begin to come together and form a huge rock wall, a Petra, that God can build his church on. He says, and on this Petra, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, the word for church is ecclesia, ecclesia. The word ecclesia is interesting, okay? It actually means an assembly of called-out citizens. So it was not a uniquely Christian term that's used here. Ecclesia was used all over uh, the, the Greek-speaking word, the world. Uh, it would be used for a school board. That would be an, an ecclesia. It would be used of a city council. That would be an ecclesia. But God says, Jesus says, I'm going to build my own council my own legislative body, my own group in unity, and the gates of hell will not prevail against them. Now, in trying to explain the ecclesia, I need to give a football analogy. Is, is anyone ready for football besides me? I'm just, I'm a huge fan. Okay, if you're not, I apologize. Just let, this, let me get this out of me and I'll be done, okay? There are three teams that take the field during a football game. One is the home team. It's their job to score on the opponent's field. And it's their job to stop their opponents from scoring on their end zone. The other is the visiting team. The visiting team, they're trying to score on the home team's end zone. And they're trying to defend their own. These two teams clash and fight. They are never going to join hands and be on the same team. They're on opposite teams. That's their job is to win. Their job is to fight. There is going to be no agreement between these two teams. But the third team on the field we call the officials or the referees. And the officials, the referees are on the field, but they're not of the field. They actually, in the NFL, the NFL determines the boundaries, the rules, um, all the different things um, that, that governs the, 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 the uh, gameplay for the football game. They have a rule book. In that rule book are all the governing guidelines that represents the managing kingdom that's over the field of play. They make decisions based on their kingdom rules, not on popularity. Anyone ever booed a ref before? Right? What do they do? They make decisions based on the playbook. Based on the rule book. It does, they don't root for one side, but they, they make sure that the authority is represented on the field of play. In the same way, the church has gotten caught up in picking a side and trying to play the game when we are called to be the officials. 
We are called to be the referees. We are called to be the ones that take the authority from on high from God and and throw the flag and blow the whistle and say, that's wrong, this is what God says. Now the problem is, when a referee, if they were had to have loyalty to one of the teams, they are no longer doing their job, they're not being good referees, and it will destroy the game, won't it? Isn't that what the church is doing? We are not to get entangled in the opposing teams. They only know how to fight. We are to rule with God's authority among them. See, the, the ecclesia, they legislate. They make decisions. The church shouldn't reflect our earthly culture. But it's our job to be God's unique presence in the culture. Legislating on behalf of heaven. We need to quit getting caught up in the game on the field and start being who God's called us to be. The lost will see what heaven looks like, what God's heart looks like, when the church begins to address issues of conflict on the field of play and and is not getting involved with the individual teams. Now, it says in Scripture, it says the gates of hell will not prevail. Gates are entry points. So if there's like a fence around a house, you can't get in. I can't get in. Oh, wait, here's a gate. Open it, and now I can get in, right? So that's what a gate is. It's it's a point of entry. So the gates of hell won't prevail. See, hell is trying to get into our culture. Hell is trying to influence our culture. But heaven has gates as well. Heaven is trying to get into our culture as well. And you are that gate. You are the gate of heaven. You are God's opportunity to come and affect this culture. So we know that the church is being the church only when the gates of hell are not prevailing. If the gates of hell are prevailing, we're not building the church. We're building our church in his name. And I believe that's what too many of us are doing. He says further in scripture, this is... um, Verse 19, he says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. Keys unlock gates, right? Hell, we got to keep the gate to hell locked. It's coming in. It's trying to affect us. Got to keep it locked. And then we've got to unlock the gate to heaven, right? Heaven needs to come down. Well, whose authority is it? It's yours. It says, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid or bind will be bound, and whatever uh, will be loosed is loosed. See, do you get that you're in charge of this? Everyone's waiting on God to, Lord, move in our country. No, you move. That's called backwards Christian soldiers. We have it backwards. We're we're waiting on God to move in our country, and he's saying, you have the keys. You need to be the ecclesia. You need to be my governing board, my council. Instead, you're getting caught up in the fight, in the, in the game. The church, not the government, is God's transforming agent in culture. The church, not the government. And I need to let you know, God is not here to take sides. He's here to take over. He's here to take over and to dominate the field of play. The church should dominate our community. Now, dominate is a heavy word. I don't mean like negatively. But we should be so, not just VFC, but the collective church of Thomasville should be so visible in our area that the people think, please, Lord, don't let any churches ever close their doors. 
that would be terrible for our community. That's what we're called to do, guys. That's what we're called to do. Not engage the two teams. Like They will always fight. They will never finish the game. It's a losing battle. You're worth more than that. You've been called to be on the officiating team. Amen? Two more things we're called to do, and I'll be done. Secondly, we are called to obey the laws of the land unless they conflict with the kingdom of God. Obey the laws of the land unless they conflict with the kingdom of God. Now, here's the verse, Romans 13. The people quote, it says, Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, for they will be punished. Wow. That sounds pretty absolute, doesn't it? Wow, if you disobey the government, God put those, that government in place, so you better do what they say, right? Well, you've got to keep reading. Don't stop reading. Verse 3, for the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right. Oh, here we go. He's not talking about bad governments. He's talking about good governments. See, if the government does not strike fear in the hearts of people who are doing good, you need to obey it. It's God's hand. It's God's representation on earth. But if they strike fear in the hearts of people that are doing good according to the word, you do not have to obey that government. Do you see that? I'll prove it to you again. Um, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 27 and 29. The apostles have been arrested. And uh, they're brought before another ecclesia. But it's not God's ecclesia. It's a high council. And the high priest confronts him, verse 28. We gave you strict orders to never again teach in this man's name. They won't even say the name of Jesus. Convicts him. We gave you strict orders to not teach in this man's name. Instead, you filled all of Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. Look, just because political authority has been established in a country doesn't mean that it's, God's, it's, it's what God has decided on. God gives us what we deserve. God gives us what we deserve. So obey the laws of the land until they conflict or conflict with what the kingdom is saying. Amen? Here's the last thing. You, you, you've done really well. Congratulations. Pray for your governmental leaders. Pray for your governmental leaders and vote for godliness. Pray and vote. Why? Because we think our government's going to usher in the kingdom of God? No. They're going to spend all their time and money fighting. What if all the money spent on politics was given to the church so we could help the poor? What if it was given to spread the gospel? They give millions and millions and millions of dollars to these candidates who won't even run in the election. It's, it just I look at the numbers and I'm like, oh, Lord, what could we do with that money? You know? Pray for your governmental leaders and vote for godliness. Why? Because God's going to use the government? No, it's broken. It's, it's, it's ir- it can't be fixed. So that we can live godly lives. Look at 1 Timothy 2. It's our last scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
She says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way also for kings and for all those who are in authority. So why? So that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked with godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. See, God wants you to pray for your leaders. God wants you to pray for our government. Why? So that we can have a government that will, that will allow us to usher in the kingdom of God. Not to hijack the secular government and try to make it Christian. It's impossible. They're going to fight each other. That's what they do. Instead, we want a government that's going to allow us, the church, to be the ecclesia he's called us to be. And to dominate our cities, our communities, our counties with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to vote for godly men and women like Daniel, like Joseph, who will do the right thing, who can't be bribed, who, who, who don't cling to their ideology above what's best for people. That's what we need to do. Guys, the statistics are terrible. Of everyone that claims to be a Christian, only half of them are registered to vote. And of the half that are registered to vote, only half of them actually vote. So that means 75% of a potential Christian vote is not being utilized. If the Christians could actually get in unity, and if we would actually vote what the word says, we would be in charge of the government in the United States. We would have godly people, again, not, not trying to use the kingdom to usher, uh, the, the, the secular kingdom to usher in God's kingdom, but who would allow us to live our lives in such a way that we can fulfill God's call for our lives. That's the vision. That's what we're supposed to do. It is my heart that this house, this family, does not get caught up in the strife and the bitterness of politics. You're going to be sitting next to people in chairs next to you in this building that vote differently than you, and you're going to love them. We're going to love each other. We're going to love each other. Because all that field of play is going to do is fight. We've got to learn to be the ecclesia, God's answer to life's problems. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand.